الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونتوب اليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم وبعد uh, it brings me great pleasure uh, to be here at the university of uh, southbank uh, in london and to address uh, my brothers and sisters in islam uh, regarding this uh, very important topic uh, which is entitled muslims and the study of the future uh, some of the announcements have a different title but the correct title uh, is muslims and the study of the future uh, this topic uh, regarding the study of the future and the position of muslims regarding this field of knowledge uh, is quite important uh, it has its very uh, important implications uh, for all those who are concerned with the issue of da'wah to Allah for all those who are concerned with the issue of the future of this Islamic ummah to, who, uh, to which we ascribe ourselves to and uh, it is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's qadr uh, that uh, I am speaking to an audience of young men and women who are educated as it seems that the majority of you if not all of you are here students at this maybe if not this educational facility but others and so therefore many of the uh, concepts that I will be addressing uh, even though there, will, there has to be a brief discussion given the nature of the topic will not be unfamiliar to you however though the idea is to draw them all together and the idea is to enlighten ourselves to this important topic the study of the future uh, the first point I'd like to uh, uh, mention is that uh, we cannot deny that uh, the desire of all human beings to know what will happen in the future is something which is uh, embedded in the nature of human beings. Every single human being, uh, irrespective of he is a Muslim or a non-Muslim, uh, irrespective if he lives in the 20th century or lives in the 10th century, uh, irrespective if male or female, all human beings are, by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's wisdom in creating them, seek to know what will happen in the future. This is something which is embedded in the depth of human nature. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, we find that human beings have differed in terms of the way that they will gain this knowledge. Because there is a human need to know what will occur in the future, human beings have approached this need in different ways. In the same way, <coughs> excuse me, I'm going to have to uh, deal with my uh, voice that seems to be going away day by day here in England. Uh, in the same way uh, that, for instance, human need to know who the Creator is, human need to know <coughs> their purpose here on Earth, has resulted in human beings taking different approaches to know that. There are those who follow Revelation, there are those who follow uh, philosophy, uh, there are those who follow uh, mystical uh, experiences, and so forth and so on. But Likewise, in the human need, this essential attribute or this essential ingredient of humanity to know what lies in its future, human beings have likewise sought different paths in trying to gain that knowledge. And we may uh, uh, summarize these paths into three paths. Before that, 
we need to establish a principle. And that principle is that only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what is of the unseen. And in particular, we're discussing here of the unseen, the future. It is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone who knows what will occur in the future. No human being, no angel, no creature knows what will happen tomorrow. And this is a principle which is well established in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِنَّهُ مَفَاتِحِ الْغَيْبِ لَا يَعْلَمُهَا إِلَّهُ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and with him are the keys or the treasures of the unseen, al-ghayb. None know them but he. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in his glorious book, the Quran, قُلْ لَا يَعْلَمُ مَنْ فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ الْغَيْبَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَمَا يَشْعُرُونَ أَيَّانَ يُبْعَثُونَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, say, none knows the unseen in the heavens and the earth except Allah. And they do not realize or perceive or sense when they will be resurrected for judgment. And likewise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us that the only creatures which know the unseen are the prophets. And they only know that because of revelation. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said in Surah Al-Jinn, الْغَيْبِ فَلَا يُصْدِرُ عَلَى غَيْبِهِ أَحَدًا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, He is the one who knows the ghayb, the unseen, and He does not expose that to anyone except for that messenger who He has chosen. And for this reason we find that Aisha, radiallahu anha, the Prophet's wife, has said, as mentioned in Sahih al-Bukhari, if anyone tells you that Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, has knowledge of the unseen, he is a liar. He is a liar. Meaning by this, that the Prophet uh, independently knows the unseen by his nature. Uh, she did not mean to deny that the Prophet informed us of matters of the unseen, but that is via the revelation. Okay. So now that we've agreed to this principle, I would hope that this principle is accepted by all of us, that none knows the unseen but Allah. We will now come to the issue of how do human beings, how have human beings tried to study the future? What are the means that they have used in trying to address the future. And in general, uh, we can say uh, that in this matter, people have differed, and that, like, as I said, they have differed concerning the need to know who their creator is, the need to know their purpose on earth. Uh, they have differed, and basically we have three types of means, or three types of references human beings have used. Uh, one type of reference is we know by our religion to be falsehood. Uh, we know, I think I'm saying, we know that it is in itself errant, and that it leads only to erroneous ideas. And that is what has been employed historically from ancient times till today from what we might refer to as fortune-telling, uh, from what we might refer to as sorcery, uh, from what we might refer to uh, as... Um, what's that? What's the English word for fortune-telling? is sorcery. Palmistry, for instance, uh, numerology, uh, you know, reading lines in the sand, uh, trying to uh, say that numbers have secret interpretations or secret meanings to it, uh, astrology and so forth, all these different types of uh, divination, which are all falsehood in themselves and lead to falsehood. This is the first uh, source of uh, human beings have used. And the people who used this were the idolaters. Uh, the ancient Babylonians, for instance, uh, those people to whom the Prophet Ibrahim alayhi salam uh, was sent and who are referred to uh, sometimes as the Sabians of Sabi'in, uh, they were among those people who used to attach 
this type of interpretation. Uh, they would look into the stars and try to argue that it is through the motion of the stars and the motion of the planets uh, in the various uh, houses uh, of the stars in, uh, in astrology would lead to uh, certain events occurring on the earth. And for this reason, they used to worship the stars. Uh, and the Prophet Ibrahim السلام, uh, was sent to them, and we know uh, his argument that he had with them, the debate he had with them, as mentioned in Surah Al-An'am, the sixth surah of the Quran, uh, where he uh, debates with them regarding uh, their star worship. Uh, and this, these ideas, uh, which were present in what we call today modern-day Iraq, and was practiced by those people who we refer to as the Babylonians, and the Chaldeans, and the Assyrians, these populations, ancient people who used to live in these areas, was then taken to the people of the scripture. And that is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala punished the children of Israel and sent to them uh, the, uh, the Babylonian king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who came and took them and destroyed the temple and took them into captivity in Babylonia. Uh, the children of Israel were influenced by such ideas. And they started to attach such type of uh, interpretations which are based upon sorcery, which are based upon astrology, which are based upon divination, uh, to their books. And they began to interpret uh, certain uh, the scriptures, and we have something which is perhaps some of you might have heard of, as known as the Jewish Kabbalah, uh, which is some mystical interpretations which they refer to uh, interpreting their scriptures, like the Psalms, like the book of Daniel, and so forth. And this is something that therefore well uh, entrenched in Jewish theology, or at least in certain segments of Jewish theology. Uh, these ideas were then, of course, inherited by their intellectual inheritors, being the Christians. And the Christians employed such type of means to interpret the future uh, in the New Testament and specifically uh, in the Revelation of St. John, uh, which is the last book which is uh, in, of the New Testament. Uh, then the Muslims also took these ideas and was introduced uh, into Islamic thought, uh, specifically by way of the Shia. Because as you know, the uh, Shia Metab or Rafidah uh, was basically introduced for or introduced by uh, Jewish thought uh, being that the activities of Abdullah bin Sabah, the, uh, uh, the Jewish Yemenite, uh, who was from the city of Sana'a, and who entered into Islam uh, with the idea to corrupt it, and many of these ideas were spread amongst the Shia. And that's why you find amongst the Shia, they have uh, certain books which they attribute to certain uh, imams of the, uh, their 12 innocent imams, uh, in particular Ja'far al-Sadiq. And one of these books is known as Al-Jafa. And they claim that in this book of Jephthah, it has all the events that will occur to the Day of Judgment. In terms of all the battles, all the incidents that will occur with the Prophet's family, uh, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and so forth. And you will find in certain um, uh, libraries uh, in Europe uh, and in uh, the Middle East, manuscripts of this book that has been attributed to Ja'far al-Fadah. Now, of course, Ja'far al-Fadah was a scholar the scholars of Sunnah, and what has been attributed to him is false. But the point is, is that they have argued this thing. Uh, then going out of Shiism, of course, is a movement which we know, refer to as Tasawwuf or Sufism, and they took also many of these ideas, which is rooted in the Jewish Christian tradition, which originally goes back to the pagan star worshiping tradition, which was in early uh, Iraq. And that is that the Sufis also, in particular Ibn Arabi and others, have attempted to interpret uh, the future. Uh, regarding, as attributing, for instance, uh, mystical interpretations to the letters of the Qur'an. Uh, you will find in some books of tafsir, like the tafsir of Tabari, uh, you find quoting therein uh, many statements giving, concerning the interpretations of the first verse of Surah Al-Baqarah. Alif, la, mi. 
Uh, what uh, they say that these letters, three detached letters, Aleph, Lam, Ni, represent uh, numbers. And these numbers represent how long this Ummah would be uh, 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 vibrant and how long this Ummah would be uh, leading the nations of the world. Uh, these ideas are all, of course, uh, incorrect. And these ideas were, are not only present amongst uh, the Sufis and the Shias in this Ummah, but then spread to the general body of the Ummah. Uh, Ibn Khaldun, uh, in his um, history, Al-Muqaddimah, uh, refers to how the kings and the rulers of his day in the Islamic world, each of them had uh, astrologers, each of them had uh, soothsayers who would interpret to them uh, based upon the, whatever means they used to try to uh, divine the future, uh, when would their nation come to an end? Because you see, kings and rulers are very concerned as to how long the dynasty will last, how long uh, they will stay in power, uh, when will they collapse, uh, when uh, will a war occur, and so forth. So they used to use them. And likewise, it also spread to the general population. Uh, Ibn Khaldun uh, mentions that in his day, uh, the soothsayers uh, would go into the marketplace and stop people and say, would you like me to tell you, for instance, what will happen to you tomorrow? Uh, would you like me to tell you what will be the price of uh, lights, for instance, uh, in a week or so? And people would pay the money to get that information. And until today, you find throughout the Islamic world, indeed throughout the world as a whole, the majority of human beings rely on one way or the other upon soothsaying, fortune-telling, and other forms of divination in order to tell what the future is. And we know this is forbidden in our religion. Indeed, this negates our faith, because only Allah knows the future, as we mentioned, uh, the unseen. And likewise, uh, the Prophet ﷺ has said, من أتى عرافا فصدقه بما يقول ومن أتى كاهنا فصدقه بما يقول فقد كثر بما أنزل على محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم that he who approaches an عراف or a كاهن these are two words of similar meaning a meaning what we call a fortune teller or a soothsayer in, in the English language and believes in what he uh, says he has disbelieved in that which was sent down to Muhammad صلى الله عليه so therefore, to believe that anyone has the ability to divine the future for you uh, is unbelief and leads to a rejection of your testimony of faith, la ilaha Allah, which implies that only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, knows the future. Uh, the second uh, source of, uh, those were the, fa- the false sources that people have used uh, regarding knowing the future. Now we have a second source that human beings have tried to know, uh, this thing which is embedded in their nature, what is going to happen in the future, and these are sources which we cannot say are totally false, nor can we say that they are totally true, and we can be certain that they lead to a knowledge of the future. Uh, for instance, dreams. Uh, we know that the dreams of the prophets are true, and we know that the interpretation of the dreams by the prophets are true, as happened in Surah Yusuf, when the prophet Yusuf, alayhi salam, or Joseph in the English language, interpreted the dream of Pharaoh. Uh, his interpretation was a correct interpretation because he is a prophet. And likewise, we know from the Prophet Sallallahu statement that the dreams of the prophet are revelation. And for this reason, when the Prophet Ibrahim uh, had a dream to uh, slaughter, to sacrifice his son, uh, Ismail or Ishmael, uh, he acted upon that dream because the dreams of the prophet are revelation. And so therefore, they are true. And uh, the prophet's dreams uh, were, as mentioned uh, in the Hadith of Aisha, were like the dawn break. In other words, like when, you know, when, uh, not, excuse me, not the dawn break, but the um, sunrise. You know, when the sun appears on the horizon, it, it lightens it up and everything is clear. There is nothing which is muddled or confused 
uh, in terms of what can you see. And, so, and such was the dreams of the Prophet Barthelon and all the prophets. Uh, now, uh, also we know the Prophet Barthelon has said that people in his ummah would have two dreams. And perhaps some of you uh, have experienced in their lives that at times uh, they have dreamt of something and that thing later to occur. Uh, these are sometimes from the glad tidings uh, that occur to human beings. And likewise, these things occur to disbelievers. Because Pharaoh's dream uh, that the famine would occur in Egypt, right? He was a disbeliever, and yet he had a true dream. So the idea of a true dream uh, is uh, not necessarily uh, something restricted to believers, but even unbelievers can have true dreams. However, though, uh, a person does not know that that dream that he has is a true dream until it occurs. I mean, in other words, you dream something. If you dream, for instance, uh, that um, your friend will marry so-and-so, all right? Who had a dream? Five years later, your friend actually married so-and-so. You never knew that that dream was true until it occurred. So therefore, it is not something that you can base uh, reality upon. And likewise, the interpretation of the dream, uh, even though this is a science which is, is rooted in the Sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, the interpretation of, of, not, of other than the Prophet is not 100% accurate. And we all know, or perhaps many of us are familiar, with the story of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. Uh, when the Prophet one of his companions, came and said, I had a dream which I saw such and such. So Abu Bakr al-Siddiq said, let me interpret it in front of the Prophet The Prophet said, after Abu Bakr interpreted the dream, that you were correct in some matters, and you were incorrect in some matters of the interpretation, and corrected that, uh, that, that mistake. So uh, this is the interpretation of Abu Bakr, who is a Siddiq, uh, the one who has the true faith and is the most knowledgeable of this ummah, and the most pious of this ummah. Indeed, he's the best human being after the prophets and messengers, and yet, in his interpretation, he was faulty in some aspects, uh, and correct, even though correct in many aspects, or the majority of the aspects of that dream, but faulty in some details. Uh, then therefore, all Western Abu Bakr, likewise, in their interpretation, will not always be 100% correct. Uh, another source, which is one of the sources for knowledge of the future, uh, which is, Again, a source which is not necessarily, uh, we cannot say that it's 100% false, like uh, divination and soothsaying and astro astrology, nor can we say true, uh, is the report of the people of the scripture. And we know that the people of the scripture have reports in their scriptures concerning the future. And we know that the general principle concerning what the people of the book say is that if they say something which our faith negates it, we know it's false. For instance, the reports in the New Testament that Isa ibn Maryam, Jesus' the son of Mary, was crucified. And we know from the Qur'an that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us that Jesus was not crucified, but it was, made, it was made to appear to them that this occurred, that they neither killed him nor crucified him, but it was made to appear to them that such thing occurred. So therefore we know this is false. Uh, there are other things uh, in their books which we know that are true, like the prophecies indicating the coming of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu because this is confirmed by our scripture. Uh, and now there are other things which neither our scripture negates nor confirms. What would be concerning these? These might be true, and they might be false. And like such is the statements by certain uh, early converts to Islam, uh, who came from a Jewish background or from a Christian background, but particularly from the Jewish rabbis, by Ka'ab al-Ahbar. Uh, this Ka'ab al-Ahbar was a Jewish rabbi who accepted Islam in the time of the Sahaba, and is reckoned amongst the Tabi'een, uh, those who met the Sahaba. And he, in many of his statements, uh, informed of many future events to occur. Uh, based upon uh, what they had in the Jewish scriptures. Uh, these matters can either be confirmed to come to true, nor can they be confirmed as lies, uh, because we have no way of gauging uh, whether this was part of the revelation which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them, or was this something which they 
added uh, to the books. And likewise, the statement of Wahab bin Murabbah, who also uh, was of a Jewish origin and had many such statements. And there are others. Uh, the third uh, type of uh, source of knowledge for knowledge of the future, which again falls under the second, uh, second heading, excuse me, uh, regarding those matters which can neither be confirmed as 100% true nor denied as 100% false, are the different studies uh, which are based upon uh, uh, looking into Allah's uh, divine laws that govern uh, nations, that govern individuals, that govern even uh, what you would call industries and different uh, actions that human beings partake in, different types of uh, commerce and so forth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, uh, in creating this universe, has placed within it certain uh, laws, uh, unbreakable laws, which we call a sunan, a sunan in Arabic. And uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said in the Quran that you will not find for his sunnah, the plural of which is sunan, uh, any change, any change. These are laws that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed. Among these laws, for instance, is that when people are uh, corrupt and oppressive, they are destroyed in the end. That eventually, uh, oppression and eventually corruption comes to an end. That that does not last. And as that's for this reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That the final end is for piety. Uh, one of the laws that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has uh, uh, placed upon the earth uh, from his sunan uh, is that uh, justice remains. And for this reason, Ibn Taymiyyah said that a just nation, uh, even if it's an unbelieving nation, will last. But an unjust nation, even if it's a believing nation, will come to an end. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the heavens and the earth in justice. So these are different laws which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned. Uh, some of these laws he has mentioned clearly, and there can be no difference of interpretation. While others are not necessarily that clear, but there are indications in the Quran and the Sunnah. And so therefore, it's based upon human reasoning, human faculty, to look into these laws, whether found mentioned in the Book of Allah, or in the Sunnah of the Prophet or just known from just the known of history of man, by studying the history of man. We interpret that, therefore, okay, if these conditions exist, such and such will occur. And if these conditions exist, such and such will occur. Uh, whether we've taken these from the revelation of Allah, or we've taken these from uh, just uh, looking into the universe and observing uh, what occurs around human beings. Uh, now, this cannot be considered uh, sorcery, nor is it considered astrology, but rather it is a type of ishtihad, a type of knowledge. And like this is uh, the um, uh, like this is the book uh, by Ibn Khaldun, his history, his Muqaddimah, where in which uh, Ibn Khaldun discusses why nations rise and fall. Why nations rise and fall. Uh, how come he got this? Well, he studied history. He studied history. He studied all the Muslim dynasties uh, from the time of the, uh, the Umayyads until his day. You know, about seven centuries of studying uh, Muslim dynasties. And also he studied the dynasties of those nations which existed before Islam from the information that he had was preserved in the history books. And from that, based upon this, he determined certain laws, certain sociological laws certain political laws which he gathered from studying the history of humanity. Uh, and this is something which is, you cannot say that everything which he um, uh, determined is 100% true. And nor can you say that everything he said is 100% false. But rather, uh, it's a matter of which he had. And it depends on how strong uh, the person who is interpreting, how strong of a student he is, how, strong, how knowledgeable he is, how much wisdom and insight Allah gives him. And therefore, the, to the degree he will be correct or incorrect. Um, now, as we will mention, 
uh, later on in the lecture. Uh, the Westerners have uh, the Europeans and the Americans, uh, those people who have inher- which refer to themselves collectively now as the West and who have inherited the uh, Christian uh, tradition, have spent much time on this third source, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, finally, we have or this third aspect of the second source, those which are correct, can be correct and can be incorrect. Uh, the final source uh, is uh, that which is 100% true and which we have no doubt concerning for. And this is a knowledge of the future which there is no doubt regarding it, and that is what has been mentioned in the book and the sunnah uh, from a future event that will occur. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent his messenger as a mercy, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةٍ لِلْعَالَمِينَ We have only sent you as a mercy unto uh, the uh, creatures. And so therefore every single matter to which this ummah is in need of, any single thing, the Prophet has explained to us. Whether that deals with matters of belief, how we should believe concerning Allah, how should we believe concerning the angels, how we should believe concerning the previous prophets, how should we believe concerning the last day, or Qadr, Allah's decree, we have information in detail regarding it. Whether it deals with law, how we should govern ourselves, how we should worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how should we interact with each other, whether we are interacting with Muslims or non-Muslims, we have detailed information. And likewise, the Prophet has given us detailed information concerning future events, concerning what will happen in the future. And that is because there will occur, or there has occurred in the past, uh, since the coming of the Prophet and there still still occur many events, uh, many heresies, uh, many tribulations and trials in which people will fail and will go astray and will result in their loss in the hereafter. And so therefore the Prophet has not left any of these matters except he has given us a detailed information indication from. Among which is the appearance of a Dajjal, the, uh, what we could call in English the Antichrist. The Prophet told us where will he appear and what route he will take and who will be his followers and what will be his uh, acts that make, will make people believe that he is Allah. And also, uh, how uh, people will react towards him, and his events, and where will he die, and who will kill him. All these detailed information. Why? Because as the Prophet told us, the greatest fitna, the greatest uh, uh, tribulation between from the creation of Adam to the day of judgment is the fitna of a Dajjal, the Antichrist. And that is why we are commanded in each prayer to seek refuge with Allah from this uh, test. Uh, likewise, the Khawarij. Uh, the Khawarij extremists, uh, Khawarij is a group of uh, sects which are extremists, which regard Muslims to be unbelievers. Uh, the Prophet informed us that extremism was the cause of the destruction of the people of the book before us. And he told us that the coming of the Khawarij, he told us how they would appear, and where would they appear, and from which tribes would be their major followers, and which tribes would fight them amongst the Arabs. And he informed us that they would remain in this ummah, appearing at the beginning of each century until the last of them appear with the Dajjal and will be in his ranks. And they even told the Prophet, even informed of the first group of Khawarij, that amongst the ranks would be so and so and so and so. And that is why when Ali ibn Fada fought them, he, and they, and they, and they, uh, they slaughtered them in the battle, uh, Ali ibn Fada said, find me, uh, the one whose two arms, uh, his arms look like, uh, small breasts of women. Uh, and they looked for him amongst the dead and they couldn't find him. They came to Ali ibn Prophet and said, we did not find him. Ali ibn Prophet said, I was not lied to, meaning by the Prophet and I did not lie. Go back and find him. And then they started to look again until they found him underneath some bodies. And they pulled him out. Because the Prophet said that amongst the leaders of Khawarij would be this person and gave this description. So Ali ibn Prophet was certain that they would find him 
uh, amongst us. And likewise, uh, the Prophet ﷺ told us about the dissension in the Ummah and how this Ummah would divide into various sects and groups in order to warn us to avoid such heresies, such astray beliefs, and to adhere and to stick to the Sunnah. And the Prophet ﷺ went into great details. He told us about the Qadariya, those who would deny Qadr. He told us about the, uh, the appearance of the Ratiba, uh, those who would have extremism concerning the Prophet's family, those who we call the Shia and another word we use. He told us about the Khawarij. The Prophet ﷺ told us about these matters in general and in detail in order so we may preserve ourselves from falling into these heresies and we stick to his Sunnah. Uh, likewise, the Prophet ﷺ told this Ummah of the battles. He told this Ummah of which nations it would conquer. It even told this Ummah of the battles that were to occur centuries and centuries in the future. And that the Sahaba themselves would not partake in. Like the final battle, what the Prophet ﷺ called, and Malhamat al-Kubra, the greatest battle, which would occur between the Muslims and the Christians just before the Day of Judgment. And the Prophet ﷺ told us how Constantinople would be conquered by a group of Muslims. And he also told us how Rome would be conquered by a group of Muslims, and how the battle would occur, and what the Muslims would do at the battle, and who would be there at the battle, which group of people, and so forth. All these detailed information, for what reason? So that we may know that these people, uh, that the Christian people, uh, the West, is our enemies until the Day of Judgment. That this animosity will remain from his day till the Day of Judgment, and that it will never come to an end until Isu uh, al-Mariyam comes uh, down. And uh, an example, uh, let's see, where are we now? Uh, for this reason, we find that the Prophet ﷺ, as reported in Bukhari and Muslim and the Muslim of Imam Ahmed, uh, told us that uh, this Ummah, uh, he one time he prayed uh, what, you know, a prayer before Zuhar, like an early morning prayer, and he stood on his member and he gave a khutbah. Until Zuhar time came, and then he came down, prayed Zuhar, and went back and gave a khutbah. Until Asr time came, and he went down from his member and gave a khutbah, and went uh, and prayed, and then went back until the setting of the sun. Uh, the companions described that the Prophet informed of everything that was and will come. Until the people enter into paradise and the people enter into the hellfire. And then the companions said, those who memorize what he said have memorized it. And those who forgot uh, what he said have uh, for- forgotten it. And one of them said that the most knowledgeable of us are those who memorize those details. So here the Prophet what great khutbah the Prophet gave to the, the Prophet's companions. From mid-morning until Maghrib time, until sunset time, informing them of all the events that will occur until the people enter into paradise and the people enter into the hellfire. It means all the events of the Ummah is in need of, not every single event, of course, that will occur in history, but every single detailed information to which this Ummah uh, would need about. Now, but there is one point we need to bring out here, is that when the Prophet ﷺ explained to us our future events, what will occur in the future, the interpretation of those events, uh, even though that what the Prophet said is 100% true, the interpretation and application of his statements uh, is a matter of ishtihad. And so therefore it can err at times and it can be correct at other times. And so therefore we should not interpret the Prophet's uh, statements according to our own desires. But rather we should look into his words and if something becomes clear to us, uh, then we can say that it means such and such. And so therefore, uh, not every interpretation of any hadith of the Prophet regarding something which will occur in the future is a correct interpretation. But rather the scholars can err in this matter. Um, this was a general introduction, and now let us come uh, to uh, the uh, real uh, aim of the lecture. <laughs> Uh, so therefore, uh, let's come now to the actual uh, heart of the lecture, and that is, uh, we want to study, and we want to now compare how the West 
Uh, since we are now in Western education institutions, and in front of me are collegiate students, uh, men and women, how does the West study the future? I mean, right now. How do Western societies look into the future? How do they study the future? And let's then compare it with how the Islamic world studies the future and draw some lessons from that. Well, the West still uses those ancient uh, means based upon divination and upon uh, uh, astrology, these uh, fairy tales and so forth. They still have a great uh, portion of their ideas concerning the future is based upon that. Uh, for instance, uh, indeed, until today, political decisions are still made uh, based upon uh, astrologers and fortune tellers and so forth. Uh, many of you might have heard that during the time uh, Ronald Reagan was president, and he was president for about eight years in the United States, uh, how uh, his wife, Nancy Reagan, would not allow uh, President Reagan uh, to get on an airplane, to go to a country, to visit a place, unless they contacted uh, their astrologer. And to say that, uh, that to make sure that nothing would happen to President Reagan. Uh, nobody would try to assassinate him, the airplane wouldn't come and uh, crash, uh, that it would be beneficial for the United States of America, beneficial for his career, his political career, uh, to do this or not to do this. So this is something in the 20th century, something uh, now. I'm sure now, if you look now, this is an election year in the United States, uh, where you to look now at the various candidates, you might find a candidate, too, who is still using astrology and so forth to determine how he should act in the uh, primaries and the elections and so forth. These are ideas which are still uh, today. Uh, about a few months ago, uh, the Washington Post, the newspaper we have in the city of Washington, D.C., uh, uh, presented an article how the Pentagon, or the Department of Defense of the United States of America, has invested tens of millions of dollars uh, into psychics in order to see if they can be used uh, to, in warfare. So these type of ideas are still uh, available, and they still are used uh, in political and military um, uh, planning, uh, strategic planning, are based upon a lot of these type of um, things which we, of course, as Muslims recognize, and it's all falsehood, like divination and astrology and so forth. Uh, and from this, what the West uses is uh, the oracles of Nostradamus. Uh, Nostradamus has a central position in the ideas of many of these Westerners. And Nostradamus was a, uh, a French uh, soothsayer that appeared a couple of centuries ago, maybe three centuries ago or four. And uh, uh, he wrote a book uh, which he took some, basically the ideas of his book were uh, basically taken from either uh, from what is mentioned in those scriptures, like in the uh, book of Daniel, uh, like what is mentioned in uh, uh, the Revelation of St. John, and perhaps he also took some stuff which is taken from the Hadith of the Prophet because uh, many of the uh, medieval Western writers and uh, post-Renaissance writers uh, took a lot of their ideas from Muslim writings, even though they wouldn't uh, want to mention that. Uh, for instance, uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, even though he attacked the Prophet in there, and uh, describes that the Prophet uh, is in the hellfire and so forth. He stole most of these ideas uh, from a book which was popular in the Middle Ages, the Muslims called Kitab al-Mi'raj, the book of the Prophet ascension to heaven, uh, which is a fabricated book attributed to Ibn Abbas. But he did wholesale, uh, wholesale plagiarism from this book, uh, which was prevalent in among, especially among Sufi circles in Spain and so forth, and made its way into Central Europe and into Italy. And, but rather, instead of changing, he just changed the characters to fit Catholic theology, and I will have a discussion concerning Dante and uh, why he uh, uh, said this about the Prophet Muhammad uh, on my lecture on Thursday regarding Western perceptions on Islam. Uh, the point is, is that uh, Nostradamus still has an effect. Uh, in 1985, in the United States, a film was made regarding Nostradamus, uh, in which he tried to interpret his events. And Nostradamus' oracle uh, says that he interpreted the coming of the French Revolution and the appearance of Napoleon 
uh, the appearance of the United States of America as a world power, the fall of the Ottoman uh, Khilafah or state, uh, even the death of John Kennedy. And in the end, uh, Nostradamus talks about the rise of an Oriental king uh, who will take over the world, which they interpret now as the coming Muslims which will take over civilization. And so therefore in the movie, uh, you see that a nuclear war occurs uh, between the Muslims. You see people wearing Arab headgear like myself and they uh, take over city after city, and then finally they launch a nuclear me their weapons, and Western civilization comes to an end. The point is, is that these ideas are still current uh, in a Western thought, and for this reason why the, uh, when Nostradamus in the late 1980s was very popular uh, in America, and uh, I don't know here if it was, it was, it was popular, but um, they uh, based it upon, also they based it upon uh, their scriptures in their knowledge of the future, uh, especially for the Christians, and the Christian fundamentalists uh, in the United States based a lot of that upon the revelation of St. John, which is the last book, as I mentioned, of the New Testament. And they uh, uh, interpret all their ideas, basically, uh, their theology uh, on that uh, book and other books in the Bible. And, for instance, they believe that uh, uh, prior to the return of Jesus, the Son of Mary, uh, there will be a battle between the Muslims and the Christians, which they call Armageddon and that they will launch nuclear weapons upon the Muslims and destroy them, and the Christians will be raised above the clouds uh, and, and will, um, uh, in what they call the rapture, and the people on the earth, the Muslims, who they call the idolaters or the uh, Canites, uh, will all come to death, and they say that the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, mentioned by Saint uh, uh, in the um, uh, revelation of uh, John, uh, is uh, the nuclear weapons which they will toss upon the Muslims, uh, uh, launch upon the Muslims, and so therefore in the last Gulf War, uh, the Gulf War that occurred in 1990-1991 uh, between the Americans and the West against Iraq, uh, they thought this was the beginning, uh, many thought in the West that this was the beginning of the Battle of Armageddon, uh, because in the uh, New Testament, and the Old Testament, uh, there's many references to the Whore of Babylon. So they said, oh, you see, this is Iraq, which is uh, inherited of Babylon, this is the Whore of Babylon, so therefore here it's going to come, and so forth, Judgment Day, Jesus is going to come any moment now, and so forth. So these are some of their ideas. And um, likewise, they'll interpret the beast uh, mentioned in, uh, in, in, in John's revelation, revelation of John, and likewise the false prophets to represent certain Muslim leaders. Uh, if there's a political uh, difference uh, with Khomeini or Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein or whoever, they'll say, you see, this refers to this, and you see in their books. And uh, even though uh, none of these interpretations have proven true over the last 20 years or so, uh, because the Christians are uh, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes them in the Quran, like cattle, uh, or more astray, uh, it makes no difference, you know. They say to them that Judgment Day will happen in 1986, and then 1986 comes, nothing happens, they'll believe something else. And uh, so therefore, uh, it's very easy for them to pass upon them uh, these ideas. So this is the second source, therefore, of uh, studies of the future in the West. The old source we mentioned, of using a soothsaying and fortune-telling, the use of the scriptures. The third source, of course, is what is known as is the philosophy of history, okay? And the philosophy of history was taken by and large from the writings of Ibn Khaldun. Uh, Ibn Khaldun is considered the first uh, historical philosopher, the first one to try to see, uh, try to put some certain laws or studies as to how nations rise and fall. And Europeans thereafter took that. For instance, you had, um, a, a, a few centuries ago, uh, a person by the name of Hegel, who was a uh, writer, who, who took some of these ideas of Ibn Khaldun and said that it would come to the end that Prussia which is a part of uh, East Germany now, I guess you would say, or maybe, maybe part of Poland, uh, would uh, be, everything would end with Prussia, and they would become the state which will dominate the world. Uh, Karl Marx 
took these ideas of Hegel and said, no, that the communist state would result in the end of the world and uh, that would be the final state to which all humanity will live in. Uh, and uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has proven them both liars in the sense that Prussia no longer exists even as a political entity and we know that communism uh, has uh, fallen as a state in Russia in our own time with all which is the events that I'm sure that occurred a few years ago. And recently, after the fall of communism, you find a person in the United States who, a uh, uh, person of Japanese origin, an American writer by the name of Francis Fukuyama, who wrote a book called um, The End of History, or The, uh, the Last Man, or something like that, I forget the title now, uh, in where he said that the final uh, development of human society will end with the Western liberal state, which is now uh, seen in the United States of America and Western Europe to some degree. Um, also from this, you find, uh, similar to this, they're not historical philosophers, but they are researchers. Uh, who tried to study uh, history and so forth, uh, like uh, an Englishman uh, by the name of Arnold Toynbee. Uh, Arnold Toynbee is a very uh, well-known historian. Uh, perhaps some of you might have read some of his writings in your practice. Uh, he studied uh, the fall of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And based upon this, he tried to understand why nations rise and fall. Uh, again, of course, he was influenced by many of Ibn Khaldun's ideas, even though they tried to hide that. And he also interpreted that the West would eventually collapse, like the Roman Empire, a collapse in his history. Uh, why? Because he said that the same causes for the collapse of the Roman Empire in terms of the uh, decay of morality, uh, the decay of the uh, society's uh, uh, basic components like the families and so forth, led to the decay, decay of the Roman Empire and will lead to the decay of the West. And he also felt that the Muslims were going to be the power of the future uh, because of the Muslims still having uh, been away from uh, you know, weakness in morality and still having strict moral standards. Uh, what is interesting though, and this is something to understand, is that he was not just a researcher, he was not just a historian. I mean, most of us know that Arnold Thornbury was a historian. But more importantly, he was also the advisor uh, for what was at that time uh, the Ministry of, of the, the Colonies, of, of British Colonies. Uh, in the uh, earlier part of the century, uh, the United Kingdom, or Great Britain, uh, had a lot of uh, colonies around the world. And so therefore they used him as an advisor to, 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 to use his knowledge in order for them to base their political decisions in the uh, Islamic world. And uh, when, uh, uh, when England lost its, 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 pre uh, its preeminence uh, in the world, and this went to the United States, all these files were then transferred uh, to the United States after World War II, as has been mentioned by Copeland in his book, uh, The Game of the Nations. Uh, the point is, is that this third source is based upon study, whether it's a philosophical study, of history or based upon research, and they make political and economic decisions based upon that. Uh, the uh, fourth source used in the West for studying Muslims and studying the world in general is what we would refer to as, uh, sometimes can be referred to as science fiction, or you know, some sort of interpretation of that. A good example is George Orwell, who was referred to by uh, many writers in the 20th century as the prophet of the uh, 20th century. Uh, he wrote a book, which many of you know, called 1984 in which he tried to uh, determine and tried to think how would society be uh, when ruled uh, by um, totalitarian regimes and also when they would have more technology which was just starting to appear uh, some 60 years ago or 70 years ago uh, when he wrote that uh, uh, book. Uh, likewise you find uh, writings by earlier writers like H.G. Wells who, who tried to try to think what would the future be like and they based it upon some scientific fact, some study, but a lot of it was imaginative and so therefore some things which they said proves to be true, like human beings reaching the moon. Uh, when he wrote uh, these uh, ideas uh, at the end of the last century, or the end of this century, uh, many people thought that was crazy. But he felt that since 
Uh, people were able to have done so much, then therefore it's just a matter of time before they're able to do uh, such more. So this is a type of source uh, used uh, by the West, and it's based upon uh, what we would call uh, science fiction, or and it has some fact in knowledge and science. Okay, the final source, so this source which is used by the West uh, in studying uh, the Islamic world and studying the Muslims and the world in general, uh, is what we call strategic planning studies. Specific strategic planning studies where they get together, they bring all the knowledge of people about a subject and try to study a certain situation. What will happen? Uh, I remember a, a couple of years ago, I was at a... Um, uh, the company I was working for sent me on a training session, you know, to learn some sort of new software. And um, uh, there were some other people there. We were in Washington, D.C. Uh, from the uh, Department of Education. And as is normal when people sit together at lunch, people usually introduce themselves and what they're doing. And he told us that in his uh, section of the Department of Education in the United States of America, they had just finished a study called America 2025 where, uh, even though this is an internal study concerning their country, where they sat together and they decided to see what would America be like in the year 2025, after 30 years or 31 years. And uh, they said that since with the introduction of new technologies, like the computer, uh, American society is driving into two types of caps. Those who are extremely poor, and they are what we call, you know, a computer illiterate. And those who are computer literate, and then therefore will have the economic and the knowledge power. And so therefore they took a test city of the city of Los Angeles, and they thought the city of Los Angeles in the year 2025 will be two cities. The inner city where people are ignorant of uh, the new technology would be in such poverty that the people would be eating rats on the street, while you would have another part of society which would be such uh, powerful and rich because they are able to come with the new change of the world that's being introduced with the new communications and new technology, uh, and they will live in almost like separated, isolated zones. All right. What's the consequence of that? That the consequence, since this would be the minority of the population, that eventually this would lead to the overwhelming uh, poor rising up in the cities. And this would have, of course, uh, many implications for the political stability and even the concept of the United States of America. Uh, if you were to have massive uh, riots and uprisings in 30 or 40 years, and you have these large segments of poor population. So then, therefore, what do they have to do? They have to make sure that the gap, which is occurring at, at, at an unbelievable rate uh, as uh, traditional means of employment uh, through uh, making of factories and uh, making um, you know, products and so forth, is leaving America and going to cheap third world countries. And America is becoming basically a country which is living off information. That is the source of its income. Uh, they have to close that gap. Because if they don't close that gap, it's going to have an implication upon the stability of that country. Uh, that, that's uh, something which is uh, internal to the United States. But let us think about how they study concerning the Islamic world. Uh, we all know that uh, among the uh, major hot items now in the world, and I think especially this week, uh, from my short contact with the British uh, press looking at some of the programs and uh, so forth, uh, is the European Union. Uh, we all know that the Master Treaty was signed, and the European Union has its significant consequences to how the world will be in the 21st century. Uh, what will ha we know, of course, that only Allah knows the unseen. This is without doubt. But we can, at the same time, uh, know that, for instance, when countries unify and have a single currency, have a single political entity, have a single army, they are much stronger, right, when they are uh, single countries that are prone to having internal differences 
uh, and prone to uh, having some strong economies and weak economies. Uh, we also know historically uh, that the Europe, the West, has united before in history. Uh, they united during the times of the Crusades, when they were led by either the German king or the uh, French king or perhaps even the English king against the Muslims. So this is something which has occurred historically. And also we know that there are needs why Europe needs to unite now. That there are certain internal reasons which necessitate it's to unite. Uh, one of it is self-preservation. Uh, when the Europeans are not united, they slaughter each other, as occurred in World War II and World War I. Basically, these were European trials, tribal wars, which they give the title of World War, but it's basically a uh, European tribal war where one European population decimates another population. Uh, if such carnage and killing occurred after World War II with the technology of that state, what would happen now with the technology of this state? It might destroy all life on the continent. So therefore, unity is a necessity uh, for the Europeans. Uh, and therefore, we must understand that this also has implications upon the Islamic world. Uh, one of the implications was that a united Europe uh, that faces, an, um, oh, before we get into the implications, uh, then they, so many studies occurred um, from the West, and especially in Europe, what would the world be when Europe unites uh, in the 21st uh, century or the end of this century? What will occur in the world? Uh, there are different theories. We can mention four in general. Uh, one says that America will still be the leading power of the world. And this is what the uh, evangelicals want. Because the evangelicals see that America is the country which will bring the coming and prepare the way for the coming of Jesus, the Son of Mary. And they see in the uh, New Testament that America has a role uh, in fighting the Muslims and uh, uh, bringing an end to what they refer to as the Canaanites or the idolaters, and that it will be the American armies which will uh, bring in the uh, coming of Jesus Christ. This is their beliefs. Um, uh, likewise, you find some uh, interpretations say that no, that in the next century it will be the Pacific Rim, uh, the Chinese, the Japanese, these Oriental nations, which will be the dominant power in the world. And the focus will shift from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And so therefore, uh, the, uh, the importance will not be cities like London and Paris and Berlin, uh, which, are, uh, which face the Atlantic, but, and also Washington, D.C. and New York, for instance, but the focus will be upon cities like Tokyo, Beijing, uh, and so forth, Seoul, Korea, and also cities on the west, uh, of the American continent, like Vancouver, Los Angeles, Seattle, and so forth. This is another interpretation. A third interpretation says, no, that the Europeans, with their unity, will occupy the preeminent position in the next century. And there's a fourth opinion that's saying that the Muslims will occupy that. Uh, these are said by some Westerners. Uh, some of them uh, openly, blatantly say that, and some of them uh, are quiet about it and say that in private. Uh, so, therefore, when they have these different interpretations, when they have these different uh, possibilities, they do not just sit in front of them, but they actually act. And so, therefore, they take measures, political, economic, uh, social measures, to ensure that their interests will be preserved in any, in any uh, uh, contingency. So, with the contingency of maybe the Muslims being a powerful thing, they took certain measures. Among these measures was the Europeans made certain that there would be no Muslim country existing on the European continent. And so therefore the events of Bosnia that we all witnessed uh, during the last three, four years was a reflection of those decisions made. Because uh, if the Muslims are, if we were to argue that perhaps the Muslims, one contingency, that they would be the upcoming power in the next century, whether it happens in 50 years, 100 years, 150 years, then to have an Islamic entity, no matter how small, within the European continent, would pose a danger to the Europeans. And so therefore they had to make sure that this state and these people were to not exist, to be wiped off the face of the earth. And so even though we are in the 20th century, and even though they have filled our ears with these false slogans like, uh, 
you know, that every people has the right to their own self-determination, uh, that this is a century of human rights, that the United Nations Charter, that, um, uh, for instance, uh, that uh, this country, international legitimacy, was recognized the United Nations. But yes, when it came to the text, no one was to be seen. And they allowed uh, the slaughter of a whole population, a population which in its essence is ethnically tied to them. Because they're basically European people. They're basically white-skinned and blonde and so forth. They're not uh, like many of us here of a darker complexion uh, uh, coming from Asia or Africa. And so therefore, with all these slogans and with all these ideas, they allowed it. And they only stopped the war, right, uh, when uh, it became uh, a point where uh, it might result in an extremely negative reaction in the Islamic world. And so therefore, they had to put it to an end. Uh, because to allow it to go further uh, would, in terms of the slaughter and the ethnic cleansing, would not fulfill their aims. And so therefore, now they choose different aims. To strangle Bosnia, to strangle uh, the Muslims uh, there, to make sure that there is no Islamic presence on the continent of Europe. Another example uh, of this, uh, how do they plan uh, for the contingency of the Muslims being the uprising power in the next century or century and a half, uh, is what we see, for instance, now in the rise of extremist groups in Europe and in the United States. Uh, those groups which are referred to uh, sometimes as the neo-Nazi movement or uh, those groups which are referred to as the skinheads. And I'm sure in a city like London you're probably uh, well aware of that. I don't have to get into much details. But, you know, it's, no, it's really interesting that many of these, even though that they say that their major beef is with the colors, right, and with people of dark complexion, whether they are brown or yellow or black, uh, but however it seems from many of their statements that their real contention is with Muslims. And that's why they say they do not want to see any uh, people wearing uh, Islamic garbs in their cities or they don't want to see any mosques and so forth. And based upon these ideas is the emphasis for most of their uh, arguments. Uh, now, uh, one does not have to uh, think far as how could such movements, whether they uh, arise upon their own without any uh, uh, being a cause for somebody creating these groups, right? How they can be manipulated by certain political forces uh, in Europe to make the Muslims leave Europe. Uh, in the sense that, uh, for instance, if Muslims are fearful that they are attacked, that they are uh, to be killed, uh, that, that they will, their messages will be burned, then what will be the natural reaction of the Muslims? The Muslims will go underground. Uh, they will try not to appear Islamic. Uh, women will start taking off their hijabs. Uh, men will start to stop wearing Islamic garb. Uh, mosques might not be prominent. might be in just houses and so forth. And even many Muslims will not even think of coming. So therefore, they've achieved their aims in, in terms of uh, lessening the growth of Islam uh, on their continent. Um, another example, uh, for instance, besides the European Union team, which we can discuss, uh, is the issue of the population. Uh, the demographic changes. Many of us have heard uh, the issue of the population uh, conference that occurred in Cairo some two years ago, uh, where the major thrust was to uh, stop the growth of Islamic populations. We all know that in the beginning of the century, uh, European populations were the majority population. Uh, countries like Great Britain had greater populations than Egypt. However, we know that now that the Islamic world, over 60% of the Islamic world, or 65% of the numbers uh, uh, escape me now, are less than the age of 15. Uh, when, when 65% or 60% or even 50% of your population is less than 15 years old and you are now 1 billion people, what does that mean within a generation or two? The growth is astronomical. It doesn't take much for us to figure out how much that's going to occur. And likewise with them, uh, they, Europeans basically, uh, most of them, uh, their population is very old. I mean, in America now we have one of the big problems with Social Security. So they say that Social Security will go bust uh, in the year 2007. Why? Uh, because the amount of money in there and the amount of money, feeding money in there, is not, uh, is not enough uh, for the age of those people, the baby boomers who are going, who, people who were born in the 50s and the early 60s, who will be entering the age of retirement. 
Uh, because when the population is generally old, so therefore they're not entering into Social Security. Social Security is what we have. You pay from your check every week uh, for your retirement, you know, so you have some small portion. So if most of the population is taking from that, and there are not enough people to put into that, then that means the thing will collapse. And that's why they say that in year 2007, it will go broke. Uh, this has its implications. Uh, so therefore, uh, uh, so therefore they realize that after a generation or two, uh, they will be such a minority, and the, uh, the people of uh, uh, the Islamic will be such a majority, they won't even necessitate any warfare to occur just by mere sheer numbers, they will no longer have a preeminent position in the world. And so therefore they have to make sure that the Islamic world, this generation which we now witness, those people who are 15 and under, do not reach maturity. Whether through war, whether through environmental poisoning, whatever it means, they must make sure, or civil strife, whatever in their countries, that they do not reach the age of adulthood. And if they reach the age of adulthood, a person who has been engaged in civil war since the age of eight, you can't expect them to be a productive uh, individual for society. Uh, one cannot uh, imagine that the, uh, that the youth of Somalia who have engaged in, in the civil war now will be a productive society. I mean, it's going to have to wait for this generation to pass and to raise a new generation uh, in order for you to have productive. Uh, the generation of Iraq, the youngs of Iraq uh, who are uh, dying now of starvation and uh, also uh, from the effects of the radiation, the depletion uh, uh, weapons and all the chemical environment after the Gulf War. What can I expect that this generation now is going to be able to stand and do anything? Maybe the generation after that, or maybe the generation after that. I'm the same thing in Lebanon and so forth. So therefore, one of their aims is to make sure that the Muslim population uh, shrinks, cut off the youth. The youth do not exist in the next generation. Likewise, part of that is that they force Muslim countries uh, to uh, have children. Uh, you know, in Egypt, they pass out condoms by the south of the United States government uh, in order to control a birth control, in order to control birth control. And for this reason, uh, the last 10 or 15 years, uh, the average is in Bangladesh, which is about 50% of children, have dropped in the 10 or 15 year period to 2.4. A series is trying to do in Pakistan or in, um, in Pakistan or in uh, Bangladesh and other areas of heavy Muslim population, Indonesia and so forth. Uh, the reasons why I don't think escape you. Uh, and likewise, uh, from the studies that the, the Europeans do regarding this, is concerning environmental pollution. Alright? Uh, environmental pollution. Uh, we know that before uh, the uh, Cairo uh, conference on, uh, uh, on population development, there was the conference on, uh, on the environment, which was held in Brazil. All right? In that, they discussed about, they studied how to preserve their environment. Because now it's realized that with the spread of technology, with the spread of industry, the environment is being poisoned. And when the environment is poisoned, human beings cannot live. And if human beings cannot live, then therefore it is essential that your environment is preserved and the environment of your, en your enemy is destroyed and depleted. And so that's why you find now they have shown where certain Western countries will take their nuclear waste and have been dumping it off the coast of certain West African countries. And all of a sudden now you find these West African Muslim countries, uh, the fishermen find all the fish dead in the sea. Uh, and they don't know why. The reason why is because nuclear waste has been dumped on the coast of the Islamic world. And likewise, we find uh, certain companies uh, going to certain Muslim countries and uh, saying we would like to rent uh, your desert uh, for 20 or 30 years. Now people say, okay, that's very good. Take the desert. What are we going to do with a bunch of land, desert land? And what they do is they, 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 they bury it there, nuclear waste, chemical waste, and so forth. Yeah, you don't feel the effects now, but within one generation or half generation, when those types of nuclear waste seep into the uh, water, uh, water, underground water uh, uh, table, uh, then therefore the population is affected. And so, therefore, uh, environmental warfare, uh, and at the same time cleaning their environment, uh, probably Muslim cities are the most filthy cities in the world. 
Because Muslims have no idea about the environment, have no idea about hygiene. Uh, and this is something which is, you know, you can see. I mean, even in cities where, uh, cities where there is a Muslim minority, like when I was in Beijing this summer, uh, the Muslim streets of the Muslim quarter was the most filthiest quarter of all of Beijing. Beijing was a filthy city. It's a backward city, you know what I'm saying? But at the same time, the Muslim quarter was, you know, I mean, unbearable. Uh, because the Muslims are the most ignorant people of this. Even though it's part of our religion, the Prophet but said, uh, be not like the Jews, for the Jews do not clean off their, do- their doorsteps. Uh, this is something from the Prophet But yet, uh, this is something which is lost to the Muslims, and that's why we find Muslim cities like Cairo, uh, like uh, uh, major Muslim metropolises like Cairo, uh, what else, Lahore, Karachi, uh, Dhaka, are probably the most, you know, dirtiest cities in the world, as opposed to uh, European American cities, which they are always trying to keep them clean and environmentally uh, safe. Okay, where are we now? Uh, uh, for instance, we also uh, have, uh, among the um, uh, matters which they study, is the issue of uh, transmission of uh, television and the, through the internet and through radio and so forth. What how does it affect? You know what? Before Europe opened itself up for satellite broadcast, they studied for a number of years what would be the effect of the spread of American culture upon the Europeans. Now, even though the Europeans and the Americans share the same heritage of being the West, and the same heritage of pagan Rome and Greece, and the same heritage of the corrupt uh, religions of Christianity and Judaism, yet there are differences, and each uh, uh, side of the Atlantic uh, has its own self-pride. And they, Europeans studied what is the effect of the, the uh, spread of uh, American television, American satellite broadcasting, direct broadcasting, into Europe. And I, even recently, I remember last summer, maybe the summer before that, I read about a, a conference that was held in Europe concerning about the Internet. How will the Internet affect Europe? Because if America has more computers in the world than anybody else, uh, would this result in American culture overtaking European culture? And what effects would this have uh, for the Europeans? And yet in the Islamic world, uh, there is no concern for this whatsoever. Muslims are, are unaware of what are the effects of this. And that is why you find that in the Islamic world, uh, you find this what is known as, or what some writers have uh, called, uh, the hideous schizophrenia. Where you find people who call themselves Muslims, but yet inwardly are westernized. And, you know, they, it's, it's, you look in the Islamic world, it's just, it's just a uh, panorama of contradictions. Uh, here is the mosque, and next to it is Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, you know, Masjid al-Haram has in front of it, you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, you go to the Prophet's mosque, uh, in the um, uh, parking lot, uh, there is a sign for Chanel perfume. What type of signals are given to a society? Because the society has no bearing and no direction where it's going, so it's just steaming with contradictions and bubbling with contradictions. And this, of course, when people are given different signals, right, they result in having schizophrenic personality. And that is what is the characteristic of Muslims, right? Except for those Muslims who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has guided, that they recognize that the truth is in the Prophet from Sunnah, and they are proud of that, you find the rest of the Muslims are pulled by two different directions. There's an inclination to be Islamic, and there's an inclination to be westernized. And they're constantly in a mental and emotional and psychological turmoil because of that. On a societal level, on a community level, and also on an individual basis. Among the studies which are done, for instance, in terms of strategic planning with regards to Muslims, is the issue of minerals and resources. Uh, we know that uh, the world runs on resources. Uh, the Americans, for instance, after the first oil embargo in 1973, uh, did a study about how long will oil last in the world. And they said that oil would last maybe perhaps only 100, uh, 100 200 years, so that maybe by the year 2100, uh, there would be no more oil in the world. And so therefore, they made strategic planning to make sure that they would have oil for 500 years. And so therefore, we have now in the United States, uh, after the 73 oil embargo, 
they have something which is known as a strategic depository of oil, some, some word of that, uh, some title to that, uh, of that type, uh, in Louisiana in the salt mines, where they just store barrels and barrels and barrels and barrels of oil, uh, waiting for the time that when oil ends, that they would not be in that type of position. And likewise, they have their own sources. They try to preserve, not pumping their sources. There are sources which they've discovered that they don't want to let people know about. And they make sure that the Islamic world pumps out all the oil it can, uh, because as long as this goes to an end, then when it happens, eventual, and eventuality, they will still have some resources, but the Islamic world will have none. This is another type of their uh, strategic uh, planning. Uh, and so therefore, uh, to publish the Islamic world. Uh, so therefore, with those five examples, uh, we now come to the point what is our responsibility? What is our responsibility? And this is the message which I wanted to bring uh, to you because as college students, as um, students in a university, uh, many of you are exposed to many uh, opportunities by which you can build uh, your personality and you can build your knowledge. And these knowledges and personalities and that you obtain can be useful uh, for the Muslims uh, if you have the right Islamic personality and you also have the right goal and aim in life. Um, we must uh, use... Uh, you know, this lecture, obviously, I mean, we're not going to be able with one lecture or two lectures or a thousand lectures uh, change much about the strategic planning in the Islamic world. However, though, uh, people start off things with ideas. And when people have ideas, uh, they have, what then? They have uh, a desire and impetus. And then that is translated into action. And so, therefore, it is extremely important that uh, we have uh, at least aware of these issues so that it might be translated into ideas and into, uh, into action. Let me give you an example. Uh, we know that from the Prophet statement and from turning the Sunnah that our enemy till the day of judgment is the Christians, what we call the Westerners or the Europeans. The Prophet told us that the Al-Malhamat al-Kubra, the greatest battle, will occur when a united Christian army comes and attacks the Muslims in Syria just before the arrival of Ethan and Maryam. If you now had the choice, if you were in charge of an Islamic organization, uh, would you, uh, for instance, uh, work in uh, concerned about spreading dawah in Korea and in Japan and forget about spreading dawah in Europe I mean if you had to make sure you have limited resources you would spread dawah in Europe and America uh, because the way of the Muslim and this is the first one we want to learn is that we fight Qadr Allah's Qadr with Qadr with Allah's decree we move one decree with another Allah's decree Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decrees for you illness this is a decree for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala what do you do? you take medicine which Allah has decreed in that medicine to cure you so you, you, you face one decree with another decree uh, as Umar said we flee from one, Allah, from one of Allah's decrees to another decree so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that it is the West which will be the power uh, and will be our enemy till the day of judgment do we just say okay that's a fact then let us just sit and wait for the battle to come these are some ideas that Muslims have, that we should just sit and wait for Isa uh, and to come. We should just wait for the Mahdi to appear. And until that time, we should just sit and just engage ourselves with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, intellectual discussions and so forth, and just uh, sit and wait for these events to occur. This is not the way of the Sunnah. The way of the Sunnah is that we face a Qadr with a Qadr. So therefore, when it comes to the issue of the West and so forth, we know that, for instance, that Constantinople will be taken over by the Christians again, because... The Prophet said that the Constantinople, when it's going to be, uh, when it's going to be um, uh, taken before the conquered, before the Day of Judgment, uh, it will be conquered without fighting. But that, you know, that the Muslims will say, Allahu Akbar, and some of its walls will fall. And they'll say, La ilaha Allah, and some of its walls will fall. This is going to be one of the signs of the Day of Judgment. Just by saying these takbirs, the, the city will collapse. Now, so therefore, uh, with that, we know that, and therefore, that what we call now Istanbul, right? 
we'll have to return back to the Christians one day. So then do we say, okay, let's just let things in Turkey go as they are. I mean, let the, let the secularism and let uh, Western entrenchments in Turkey continue as it is, because this is a divine thing that Allah has decreed. No. We fight that Qadr with another Qadr. says we make sure that Dawah is in Turkey for as long as it is. So when the time comes for that to occur, it occurs. The Prophet told us that an Ethiopian, okay, uh, with uh, two thin uh, shanks, will destroy the Kaaba, piece by piece. Uh, so then, therefore, we say, well, okay, it's going to happen. An Ethiopian is going to come and destroy the Kaaba. So therefore, whatever happens in East Africa, just let it happen. No, we f- we know this will happen. One day, the Kaaba will be destroyed by an Ethiopian. But we fight that Qadr with the Qadr by what? By making sure and making sure that the Dawah is strong in East Africa, and that it remains that no uh, non-Muslim country ever has uh, rule in East in, in East Africa, but that strong Muslim states have that. Uh, we do not believe like the Christians believe and the Jews believe they have a theological concept which Allah changes his khadr. In other words, they feel that even if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed uh, that, for instance, that uh, a certain matter will happen, uh, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala might then realize that his decision was wrong and change it. That's what they believe. So therefore, they, they could care less what is mentioned by the Prophet or what they realize are eventualities. They say that maybe Allah will change his mind. Uh, this is what they say uh, because they think of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala like a human being. But we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's qadr, what he has decreed uh, in uh, his uh, decrees before he created the heavens and the earth, will come through, will come to pass. Yet we do not submit to these decrees like this, but we, with another decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, face those decrees. And this is a principle uh, which is known by the Muslims. Uh, the second matter uh, is that uh, it is required uh, that we uh, also study the Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's laws on the earth. Whether these laws are existed, are mentioned in the Qur'an or in the Sunnah, or whether we know that just through observation of human activity. Uh, Muslims cannot be ignorant as to why uh, things happen in the world. There are certain Sunnahs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the earth. Uh, Muslims should realize that sinfulness results in destruction by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That when a, pe- when a people are sinful, Allah destroys those people. This should be something that every Muslim knows. Uh, likewise, Muslims should know that justice leads to success. Uh, that when people are unjust, even if they are Muslims, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroys them, and so forth and so on. Muslims must be able to recognize uh, these uh, regulations and so forth. And so therefore, based upon our great resource, we have something which the West does not have. We have the true source of knowledge, the Quran and the Sunnah, something which is inerrant. And therefore, because of that true source of knowledge, our ability to think and our ability to interpret is more correct than them. I mean, when they try to interpret, when they do their strategic studies and planning, right, they're bound to make mistakes because they base it upon an aqidah of shirk, an aqidah which is based upon, I mean, which is based upon um, superstition and based upon make-believe. Uh, people who believe that the Lord of the world was cast on a cross and the Jews came and slapped him on the face and spit on him, and then he was the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, how can such people come to reasonable decisions? Uh, how can people who still rely upon the ideas of Nostradamus and these other uh, soothsayers and, you know, uh, listen to fortune tellers and astrologers come to reasonable interpretations? They're bound to fail, even though they might get sometimes correct uh, based upon certain truths which can be looked through human observation of human nature. But us Muslims who have the true sources, our minds, therefore, should be minds that are able to look and penetrate deeply into events and to affairs and to human conditions. And therefore, our decisions should reflect that true source which we have. And uh, as a result, uh, it is extremely important 
uh, that for us as Muslims, especially for the uh, young Muslims that I have uh, before me, uh, those Muslims who are in the collegiate uh, age and so forth, that you do not allow your studies here to go to waste. That you build your personalities Islamically, and you also gain the most you can from this uh, education that you get. And through the combination of the two, you find your role for your ummah. You find the role that you have uh, for your ummah. Uh, do not allow Western education just to make you a consumer. Uh, that, the, that you study in order to get just eat and drink and sleep better than the rest. Okay? That is a life which leads to sorrow in this world and destruction hereafter. But uh, you should, through your faith, through your iman, through your tawheed, uh, use this to become believers who can uh, serve their ummah and uh, serve uh, and also win the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the hereafter. And even if you do not find yourself a role in serving the ummah as a whole, the Muslims of Great Britain uh, need to ascertain and make sure that Islam is rooted in the society. Now, as I have come out to uh, the United Kingdom, uh, I mean, a number of times over the last four years for Dawah, and until now, I, with you with your population and with all the benefits you have, Islam is still not rooted in the society. You are still, uh, are still suffering from what and this is another Western study which was done about Muslims in the West. They said Muslims in the West have two trends. Uh, that of the ghettoization of Islam and that of the Europeanization of Islam. Uh, the ghettoization of Islam is when Muslims basically live on the fringe of society. Uh, in small uh, ghettos. This is prevalent, of course, uh, in Europe where you have a lot of ethnic concentrations and so forth. And so therefore, they have no effect on the society around them. And uh, they live some sort of folk Islam, cultural Islam. It's not a true Islam. And uh, so therefore, maybe they have the smells and the sites of Muslims, but it's not a true Islam, it's not a, a true Islam, and at the same time it has no effect on the society as a whole. Uh, the second type of Islam, they said, which is prevalent in the West, is the Europeanization of Islam. This is what occurs in America, where Muslims become Westernized, and so therefore they try to change the religion and reinterpret their religious teachings in order to become more like Western ideas, and so therefore these people eventually become part and parcel of the West. And the West can use them, therefore. I mean, the West doesn't care, for instance, uh, that your uh, father or your mother uh, wears traditional Pakistani clothes and eats curry, as long as they know for, uh, from Somalia or from Arabia, as long as they are certain that you, okay, will eventually uh, lose your identity. And if not you will lose your identity 100%, and let's say you lose 80% of your identity, your children lose the remaining 20%, or their children. And so therefore, you become then a soldier among their ranks. And at the same time, they benefit uh, from your connections over there to influence uh, ideas and there. So therefore that study which studied the Muslims of the West, uh, they, they say we have no fear for Muslims coming to the West because what's happening is that the, the Muslims coming to the West are taking ideas of our ideas and implanting it back in their countries. So it's a good type of means of propagation of our ideas and our culture in the Islamic world. Uh, as what I'm, the point I'm trying to bring is that each of us have a role to play and we must proceed from our strong faith, our correct understanding of Islam, and also that we live in the time that we are in. And I hope that this lecture uh, at least opened our minds to what aspect of that, uh, which is the study of the future, and uh, provided some uh, ideas of how uh, we might uh, take a role uh, for our ummah. And I guess we have a half an hour or so to uh, answer questions if there are any. Or listen to your comments if you have any comments. To take both uh, written and spoken questions, we have a couple here that are written, so I make a reference to this one just to slide off.
Okay, just let one brother collect the Okay, um, first question. This is a very good question. I like questions that deal with the subject. I mean, I prefer that we exhaust what we talked about. And then, if a brother or sister has questions regarding other matters, whether aqidah or fiqh or politics, then we can address those questions. So this is a good question. Uh, some of your lecture has been concerned with the interpretation of the actions of the kuffar. Uh, how do you suggest that we train ourselves to be able to see through the plots of the kuffar? Well, uh, first of all, we should understand that interpretation of what the kuffar are doing uh, is no, of no meaning unless we have the correct Islamic aqidah or faith in us. Uh, because this aqidah, this faith, is the starting point for us to look at the world around us. Uh, when a Muslim, for instance, believes that, well, the, the best way for humanity to live is that all human beings should forget their religious differences and we should all work together to make a better humanity and one world government under the United Nations is the way to go, then obviously his interpretation of what occurs uh, in the Islamic world is going to be false. I mean, he'll see that, that, for instance, what the Europeans have done, he'll clap for them. He'll say, MashaAllah, he'll probably clap because he's westernized, but, and he'll say that, that uh, for instance, they've done a good job. That what they did when they went to Somalia was good. What they did when they went to the Gulf was good. What they did when they went to Bosnia is good, because he does not have those faces. But when a person is, has the correct understanding of Aqidah, and particularly the Aqidah, and Wala' and Barah, to whom our allegiance is to be shown, and to whom our hatred and enmity is to be shown, and how we must govern ourselves in our actions with dealing with believers, and how we should govern ourselves when dealing with the disbelievers, then when he comes across these events, and he has knowledge of them, he's able to interpret them correctly. Uh, so therefore one needs the Aqidah, the firm Aqidah of Suhid and Shirk, Wala and Barak, Kufr and Iman, must be rooted in his heart as his name is rooted in his mind. Just like you have no doubt that your name, like my name is Ali, and Idris has no doubt that his name is Idris, and every brother here has no doubt regarding his name. And such, the Aqid of Suhid must be rooted in us. Uh, only when you have that, and then of course the second issue is study. I mean, for instance, if you want to now study um, any subject, let's say you want to study the uh, spread of diseases uh, in a population, okay? Uh, this requires a knowledge of microbiology, it requires a knowledge of, of, uh, a knowledge of also human uh, inhabitation, a knowledge of uh, how diseases are spread, a knowledge of different uh, types of way of fighting diseases. So then you can make a study and you can say that uh, given the living conditions of the Muslims in a certain sector of, of, of Britain, this is why we find these diseases prevalent amongst themselves. So you need the knowledge and you also need uh, the aqidah and for dealing with the kuffar, same thing, political studies, economic studies, uh, environmental studies, it's, it's study. And so therefore, reading, uh, taking courses and so forth, you then develop knowledge of the ideas that these people have, whether regards the Muslims or not. Another point I want to mention is that, look, not every single person in the Ummah must be knowledgeable of all these affairs, right? But every single one of us must have a role in this Ummah. So there will be those of us who will be doctors. There will be those of us who will be uh, scientists. There will be those of us who will be political leaders. There will be those of us who will be scholars. Uh, the Ummah needs all these type of men and women, uh, and not just only one type. Uh, it says, uh, if we make dua and strive, it is likely that the degree of fighting huh, and Muslims losing and being humiliated will be lessened, uh, softened. Uh, yes. Uh, obviously, that uh, one of the means of dua, uh, one of the means of qadr, is dua. And so therefore, when we make dua, and we are true Muslims, uh, the loss is less. And that's why when the true Muslims in the, in the Day of Judgment, they will be able to defeat the Jews and the Christians, the Antichrist, and so forth. But who will be their leader? The leader will be the Mahdi. The leader will be Ace of the Mahdi, the Prophet of Allah. 
Uh, and so therefore Muslims now, who neither know how to make jaw, do not even know who they're supposed to make jaw to. The majority of the Muslims, or large segments of them, do not know that only jaw is created for Allah. And think that if they pray to a saint, uh, this will be the way to uh, get success in this world and win paradise in the hereafter. So obviously these type of Muslims will have no success in this world or in the hereafter. Uh, this is a hadith which the scholars have differed concerning its um, authenticity, which is mentioned in some books of the Sunnah, like Sunnah Abi Aqam, where the Prophet uh, uh, that there will be a group of people who will, two groups of people will be destroyed regarding you. Uh, one who has extreme love for you, one who has extreme hatred to you. Uh, so if this hadith is confirmed, there's a difference between scholars concerning the various chains of this hadith. But let's just, for the sake of argument, concede that the hadith is affirmed. And that is an indication of the Rafah, whose characteristic is uh, their extreme love uh, to Ali, uh, to the degree that they attribute to him divinity, or some of them even claim that he is Allah in the person of a human being. Okay, you say that it is a good idea for us to use our secular education in order to benefit the ummah, and I agree with you, but what is the ruling of the scholars about sisters going to these kufar institutions? Anyway, uh, this is an issue which uh, uh, in the past has frankly much grief for answering it, and uh, so therefore, in order to uh, avoid uh, such promotion that will occur uh, from my answer, uh, since we're discussing the particular situation here in the United Kingdom, uh, I refer you to your scholars here in the United Kingdom, uh, like Sheikh Sahib and others, to give you a fatwa regarding that. Uh, could you please verify the hadith uh, where not exact words the Prophet said, I am not responsible for the Muslim who lives in the land of the Kufar. Could you please explain this context? Yes. Uh, the context of these hadith where the Prophet disavowed himself from those Muslims who live amongst the disbelievers is that uh, Muslims, part of our faith, one of the implications of our testimony of faith, that Muslims should not live amongst unbelievers. However, that we have a reality amongst us that there's approximately now 45 million Muslims living in the West. And by the West, I mean the United States and Canada, uh, South America, Australia, New Zealand, and Western and Central Europe. 45 million Muslims, okay. Where are these 45 million Muslims to go? And their numbers are increasing at astronomical rates almost, or at very large rates, on a yearly basis. What are we to do with them? Uh, the Islamic world, the chaos that the Islamic world is in, uh, the... Uh, the, the, the problem the Islamic world is in has caused these Muslims to leave the Islamic world. And these Muslims are on the edge of destruction. Uh, not just from the sense of the hadith of the Prophet but because most of the Muslims who come here come with limited education. Uh, not only limited education of the religion, which is probably characteristic of them all, but more importantly, many of them have limited education of worldly matters. And that's why they, most of them take these menial jobs or low-paying jobs in the society. They fulfill the jobs of the Europeans themselves, the Americans themselves, do not want to take. And as a result, uh, they fall under great many influences and their, their loss of identity in the second and third generation is their sin. Uh, if you are now to stand and say to the people, all go back uh, to the Islamic world, nobody's going to respond to you. And this is a fact that you have to deal with. Uh, likewise, um, for those people, let's say young men and women like yourselves, who understand this prophet, prophetic command, and want to apply it, where are you going to go? I mean, perhaps if in this room there's a hundred people, uh, maybe one of you might find a job overseas uh, because you have the qualifications and invited to work in a Muslim country, and that might only be for a certain period of time. Uh, so then we also have the problem that even those who would like to make hijrah, 
Sometimes we don't have the means to. So how are we going to deal with the situation? Uh, some people want to deal with the situation by saying that, well, Hijra uh, is required to do, and they've been there for they have no, pay no attention to building of Islamic institutions in the West. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as told in the Quran, فَاتَّقُوا اللَّهَ مَصْطَفَعَكُمْ Fear Allah as much as you can. And the Prophet said, إِتَّقَ اللَّهَ حَيْثُ مَا Fear Allah wherever you are. So therefore we must work on both things. We must instill in each and every Muslim the belief that he is not supposed to be living amongst the non-Muslims. Because even if he is unable to make hijrah to an Islamic land, this is a type of defense for him. You see what I'm saying? I mean, when you, like for instance now, uh, when I know that I'm not going to be here in London uh, for more than uh, a week or two weeks, right? Or will I go now and investigate to rent an apartment? Of course not. Because in my conscience, in my being, right, I know that I'm not going to stay here. And so therefore my attachment to the city of, the lo- of London, right, is going to be a passing attachment. I mean, I've got a business to do. When I've finished it, I'm going to go back to my place. Uh, likewise, the Muslim who realizes and understands that he is not supposed to live among the unbelievers, right? His attachment to that society, his sense that, well, I am part, and even if this is a false sense, that means they never will make you part of this society, but I'm part of this society. And so therefore, you, you feel that the, the concerns of this society, the philosophy of this society, the culture of this society, the beliefs of this society are your beliefs, your culture, your concern, your aims, and so forth. Uh, this is the danger. When a person knows that he has to make hijra, he doesn't have this. So it's a type of inner shield for him. At the same time, uh, since we know that in, in reality the Muslims will not get up and leave, we therefore have a responsibility to root Islam in the West. To root Islam in the West. And rooting Islam in the West needs institutions. And it needs an Islam which is not a Europeanized Islam, which tries to reinterpret our Islamic teachings in order to fit the ideas of the West. And I'll give an example of that uh, tomorrow in my lecture on feminism's new Islam. And likewise, we don't want a ghettoized Islam, which can be seen, for instance, uh, in certain populations, in certain uh, segments of the Islamic population in the West, where Muslims live a fringe existence and have no bearing on themselves or on the society as a whole. But rather we want a dynamic Islam. An Islam which is firmly rooted uh, in the society, firmly rooted in Islam, the pure Islam the Prophet came with, and acts as a vehicle to influence the West. Uh, influence the West through da'wah. Because the more kuffar who enter to Muslim, the more, this is a technique she has to prevent them from uh, their attack of the Muslim world. Uh, you know, you might imagine now that if Britain was 50% of the Muslim population, they wouldn't have participated in the Gulf War. Alright? Uh, 50% of Muslims, English Muslims, for instance, uh, uh, who are uh, doctors, who are engineers, who are taking different positions in society where the society needs them. Okay? And at the same time, are upon their religion. They understand Tawheed. They understand their beliefs. They are influential and so forth. This is a very big dilemma for them. But, you know, I mean, millions and millions of Muslims who live in a ghettoized sort of environment, who have no idea what is Islam, and are just, you know, going, passing through existence day by day, it makes no difference for them. In fact, this is a benefit for them. Because they do not have the population growth that they need. And so therefore, they'll let you stay, you know, wearing your kufi, uh, wearing your shirwal, uh, wearing uh, your uh, hijab for a generation, because they know your children will be theirs. And if your children will not be theirs, their children will be theirs. And so therefore you become one of them. I remember I went to my brother and told me uh, when he was in the city of Boston, 
uh, Boston and New England was one of the early areas where Muslims came to the United States. Uh, in the beginning of the end of the last century and the beginning of this century, large number of Muslims came from Syria and Lebanon. So my brother was sitting in a restaurant and talking about Islam, and an old man, about 70 years old, uh, was very surprised. And he came and to eat with him. So I sit down next to him. So my brother said, okay, eat too. We're eating pizza or something like that. And uh, he said, you know, I remember my grandfather used to be a Muslim. My grandfather used to be a Muslim. And I remember when I was a little boy, they used to play in the mosque, and they used to send me, uh, during Tarawih and Ramadan, okay, uh, the month, he said the month of fasting, he used to send me to bring bread. And we used to eat from the Arabic bakery that they used to eat bread after uh, their prayer. But he himself, the grandson of a Muslim, fought in World War II, uh, served the American government for a number of years, and all his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and his children were all Christians. And had completely become part of American society, you see. So, you see, these, these type of Muslims are a benefit for them. Uh, because they, they still the population deficiencies they have. So we could care less now if, you know, they take a million Japanese, if they become all Americanized. And they could care less if they take a million Somalians and make them all Europeanized. Because, you know, for a while, yes, they will still have their customs and so forth. But within two generations, three generations, they will become British and they will have no idea, or Canadians or whatever, they'll have no idea who they are nor they have any concerns. And so therefore they will be soldiers in their ranks. So that's the uh, answer concerning Hitler. I know that was a lengthy answer, and I apologize, but the subject needed that type of treatment. Uh, even though it's important to have the Islamic school and non-Islamic society, do you think there are certain bene- uh, benefits for, for a Muslim teacher teaching in a state school? Uh, no. I mean, why can't Muslim schools be of the level of state schools? I mean, the argument is that, look, we want Muslim teachers in state schools uh, because Muslim schools do not have the educational level. Uh, you know, that what happens is when people go to Muslim schools, Muslim schools, either they don't turn them out educated in the Western sense, and they don't turn them out educated in the Islamic sense. So it's, it's, many people think it's a waste of time. So they say, okay, uh, if I can't get an Islamic education, and I can't get a Western education, at least I send to a state school, he gets Western education. So let us say, why don't we make Islamic schools on par, if not better, than Western schools? And so then, therefore, we uh, solve ourselves with the problem. I want to